Welcome to the Tree of Prima podcast, a podcast about Freemasonry and the Western esoteric tradition. I'm Pat. I'm here with Jake, and uh, we have a special guest with us today. J- Jamie's not joining us, but in his place is uh, Troy Spree- Spreeu. Um, that's Spreeu. Yeah, that's good. Spreeu. Sorry, I should have not asked that. Not bad. Troy Spreu. Um, (laughs) Troy is an occultist and aspirant to the great work with a particular interest in the intersection between Freemasonry, Hermeticism, and traditional craft. He's a past master of Duke, Cornot Lodge, number 64, and immediate past master of Vancouver Lodge of Education and Research, both within the jurisdiction of the Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon. He's passionate about organizing events, having been involved in the last 10 years with the Grand Masonic Day, and as a founding organizer of Esotericism and Freemasonry Conference. Um, welcome, Troy, to Tria Prima. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Pat, Jake. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed, very much enjoyed listening to your episodes. So it's a, it's a, a joy and an honor to be invited on with you guys today. Our pleasure. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you. And that's uh, Duke um, of Connaught Lodge, number 64. Duke of Connaught. Ah. Duke of Connaught. <laughs> Again, close enough. Yes. Close ish. <laughs> People who know it will will recognize immediately. That's yeah. Great. Um, so we, 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 have, we've got, we have you on today to talk to us about an event that you have coming up that we think our listeners would be really interested in. Um, tell us about that. What, what's coming up? What have you got planned? So October 1st and 2nd in Seattle, Washington, we've planned the sixth annual Esotericism in Freemasonry Conference, uh, shortened EFC 2022. Uh, myself and Ken Lane and one other organized the original three years. And for the last couple of years, Ken Lane and I have been doing it ourselves. And the last two years, obviously, we were holding them virtually and we're just super excited to get back to a physical meeting again. Uh, we're meeting at the at the Ballard Masonic Hall in Seattle, October 1st and 2nd, and tickets are now available. So please go to the esotericmasonry.com website and have a look. So what can I, ex- what can I expect um, to experience and learn about if I go to the es- Esotericism and Freemasonry Conference? What do you, what do you all have planned? Well, what can you dep- tell me about? It? it depends on the year you go. Uh, the, the, Ken Lane and I, spoiling, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So while well, I can spoil, cause I, I just firmed up the, the speakers list and we'll be announcing in the next few days, who's actually coming to this event. Um, our keynote will be Lon Milo Duquette, uh, and, uh, uh brother Jamie Paul Lamb, I believe is attending, uh, a local brother, Wes Regan, um, and another local brother, uh, Richard Harris uh, talking about uh, initiation and Elias Ashmole. There's a number of great topics at at these events. This year's event is 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 uh, no less fascinating. We've also got a group um, from North Carolina that are going to pres- present uh, the hook to their ongoing classes that they've been holding um, that are that are leaning towards esotericism uh, for Freemasons, and it's. Uh, it's just such a long list of, of talks around the event, the Friday night. Um, we have Doug Russell, uh, from California coming up to do a meditative session, invite only meditative session for attendees. Uh, and then it's all day Saturday and all day Sunday, the Saturday night we'll be having uh, a fish dinner put on by the, the guys from the Ballard Lodge 
and then we're going to be uh, attending lodge for for people who are attending that are Freemasons will be invited to attend a master Mason degree put on by Esoterica Lodge. So it's a it's a very wow. very busy weekend. Now, That's what cool, sort man. of presentations are you going to see? Sorry, uh, sorry, Jake. Um, what what kind of presentations are you going to see? Well, they're going to be presentations on uh, on esotericism, but that is somewhat adjacent or or in some way related to Freemasonry. It's great, and, and, and you know, uh, one of Tria Prima's hosts, uh, Jamie Paul Am, will be out there, and and uh, I, I think Archie plan on having Petey Newman as well. Petey's Petey's kind of a a uh, would you say honorary Tria Prima yeah, <laughs> member? Having been got, the author of our first book. Yeah, I've got Angels and Vermilion right here in my hands. I've been reading it. Uh, he was supposed to be on with me last night, and he had to cancel ah. last minute with some family issues. But, but we've secured him for 2023, so it's going to be cool. October, uh, not this year, but next year. Oh, awesome. Okay. We've we've already got a full slate this year between locals and um, and people we're bringing in, and it's just we're already jam-packed. We're already like... Uh, the keynote was going to do three sessions. Now he's only going to do two. Uh, you know, we're moving stuff around because we've got so much great content. It's a good um, problem to have. Uh, yeah. And, and we did put a general call for papers out. Um, and we put that out in March of 2022. And we did have good response and we did turn some papers down. Uh, but part of our process too is to help develop uh, brethren who are interested in presenting about this type of material. And we're prepared to help uh, people find uh, an academic and a content advisor. Uh, so if people want to uh, do a presentation and want it more academically leaning than experiential, we could help them find somebody to, to help them rewrite it or, or go through it and, and provide some proofs and, and oh, wow. show some, um, and show some uh, footnotes at the end. So it's, it's a, it's a, we're, we're keen to help not just, do these presentations, but de develop a, a, a subculture that's willing to work with academia. So you've got this crossover between uh, uh, people interested in the, in the experiential side of the material, uh, practitioners mainly, and then some academics. I know academic conferences that approach uh, esotericism really struggle with that. Academics don't want to be seen as practitioners necessarily. Yeah. And people who I know who are both academics and practitioners have to really scrub their papers to keep from showing that. We're hoping that this event, uh, through development over time, can get to the point where we might be able to provide a little bit more of a crossover and be able to publish material. That's the other goal is to is to not just publish a, a, a full proceedings, but an advanced proceedings as well, so that this material gets into print so that it can survive longer then maybe these internet assets might survive. So that's that's sure. an important part of the founding of the, the organization. So again, esotericmasonry.com if you're interested. And even if you've missed this year's submission for a paper, if you have an idea for a paper, submit it and we'll provide you some feedback. Um, and maybe you'll get accepted for another year or we'll forward it to a different conference that we're involved in or whatnot. Uh, there's Grand Masonic Day coming next spring for Grand Lodge of British Columbia and Yukon. That's always held in Vancouver, uh, but it's looking for presenters right now. So you never know when a paper you send to me or Ken might end up in, in Wes Regan's hands, for example, and he might call you back and say, well, you missed this, but you can go to the next thing. Um, and you so know, do you give them parameters? Sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I, yeah, I had a no. question and I don't want to lose because uh, you're, you're scooting through topics that I keep 
keying into i'm like oh, oh no, that's, that's great that's, that's awesome that's awesome no it that yeah so me, um do you do you provide any sort of um schematic for what you're looking for or you just just say hey submit whatever you got and send it in is there anything necessarily that you any rules or any parameters that you lay out for people that want you to know, submit when with the conference so young and with so few of us involved we've we've just really thrown a wide net and and we'd we'd like material that's uh that w- would pass at least a, at a first glance an academic sort of r- some academic rigor we don't a couple just footnotes people, yeah we just don't want people putting forward a, an un, an unsubstantiated idea isn't this a cool idea mm. now there are uh some papers we've done in the past that wouldn't pass academic muster and and i think we'll keep doing stuff like that more experiential or suggestions of interpretations of this or that but mm. um, the the idea is to uh, start applying a, a bit more rigor to what gets presented uh, yeah. in in a lodge or at a conference, and that uh, the practicums just, are cool as well. That you were saying is like the yeah. uh, meditation, that sort of thing. Yeah, so we do that. So if if someone wanted to do that sort of thing as well, how might they propose uh, a practicum and and necessarily just the same way or? Um, yeah, so it's the same with panels. Like we've thrown it open there. Uh, mm. We're going to organize a couple of panels this year at this event. Now the topics haven't been announced yet, but the if somebody has an idea for a panel they'd like to do, or some panelists they want to come forward, or even some questions, they could go through the process and submit that, and we'll put a panel together that will work that way. Um, same thing. We're doing an experiential Friday night with the meditations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're doing an experiential Saturday night with the Master Mason degree. Now the Master Mason degree will be closed. And some of the lectures on Sunday specifically to do with Freemasonry will be closed. But the idea is also to have as much of the conference open as possible so that you can have interested members of the public uh, come and attend. Uh, we've had uh, we've had women there. We've had members of organizations that wouldn't be recognized uh, there in the past. And they're not allowed, obviously, into anything that needs to be tiled. But for academic discussion or for experiential discussion of certain topics, it's perfectly fine to have members of the public there. And I and love that. Yeah, we've had more good success. The better. That. Yeah, we've had good success with that. And uh, you know, my exposure into the occult and magical and, and traditional craft community, uh, I in, I invite all of those people. If you have an interest in esotericism broadly, uh, certainly exposure to the people coming to this event and some of the talks uh, wouldn't be untoward you know, um, mm. Lon Duquette himself and, and, and brother, brother lamb, uh, pretty clearly interested in, uh, magic and esotericism outside of, of what would be considered craft Freemasonry. Right. Yeah. What a, what a great opportunity for anyone to, you know, get face to face with those, those guys. So that's kind of a perfect lead into another question I had, which is essentially, you know, what, what was your in to esotericism? What's your story with, with the, with the occult, and that's a that's a good question. How did it start? Um, yeah, it's been a while since I've answered that question, but I I, I will endeavor to do my best. Um, Please. In the nineties, uh, my wife and I bought a New Age bookstore in my hometown. I, I I grew up as a member of family business. We were in the hardware business, and a lady that my wife was working for was selling her bookstore, and the and the the, the records looked okay. And we thought, well, we could maybe make a go of this. It'll give Nina full-time work anyway. So we ended up buying this bookstore. 
And we ran it for a few years and then a major bookseller was going to move to town. So, and, and we wanted to do something different. We, I was winding down my interest in the family business and moving away. So we closed the bookshop and in the closure of the bookshop, there were a few copies the the Israel Regardi's Golden Dawn and Israel Regardi's Garden of Pomegranates were on the bookshelves when we closed it and they had been there too long to send back. So even though we sent back the vast majority of the stock we had, some of these books have been around for a while and I grabbed them and they just, they kind of hung around in my, in my library for a couple of years. And that uh, Garden of Pomegranates went with me on a trip, uh, a sales trip up north, uh, British Columbia, where, where I happened to have an eight hour train ride in between towns. <laughs> and I just, I brought this Garden of Pomegranates book and, and read it in its entirety in a couple of sittings during this eight hour <laughs> train ride. And, and it was clearly Regardi was on about something. And I, it, you know, it, it's, it's clear how the Kabbalah works to me now, but at that time, even reading that book, it was just like, man, there's a lot going on here. But I got, I got back to the city not long after that. And I, I lost that copy of the Garden of Pomegranates and the Golden Dawn book. Interesting uh, stories to those. Um, they were lost. We're talking like 99, 2000, right around this time. And then uh, back in, in Vancouver, there was a little store. It's still open called the Visions Bookstore in New West, right close to where I live now, but not anywhere close to where I was living before. And I called them looking for a copy of, of Crowley's book of, of Kabbalistic poetry called the Book of Lies. And I, I found that, and don't ask me what led me to that particular book, but that's the book I was looking for. And this was Amazon was still a stub at the time, right? So ordering it online was probably possible, just not something I was willing to do. I went physically to a bookstore and got this copy of the Book of Lies. And I spent six months reading it in my bathroom. And if you've ever looked at Crowley's Book of Lies, it's it's not Crowley's most approachable work. But I, I you know, I'd be reading it and I'm like, man, he, he's going on about something. There's got to be something going on in here. Clearly, there's like layers of hidden meaning in the Book of Lies. And not only are the text and then the count of the words and the layout of the words on the page is significant in the book of lies. There's, there's just so many layers of meaning there. And that's what spurred me to then go back to Visions Bookstore and get a copy of the book of the law and start looking at Crowley's life and work more seriously. So this was 20 years ago now. And, and I don't know at what point I became a dedicated Thelemite. I was just going to say, and thus was born a Thelemite. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, certainly I had been a practicing uh, Christian with very little interest in, in, in the traditional organizations of Christianity. It was, the, it was the, the, the Christian organizations I had a problem with, not the Christians themselves necessarily, and not Christ certainly, uh, but very familiar with the Old Testament and New Testament and, and even some new thought and Freemasonry and whatnot. But it was, it was studying Crowley and seeing that there clearly was a, a system in place there maybe before he had it. And then he put forward and then I learned later that was the golden dawn. Um, and he put it forward, but there's, there's a spiritual force behind the Lima. And I think it pre-exists Crowley for certain, um, and now we're, we're getting into more experiential material. You have to apologize, but you did ask. Um, oh, the, please. So it, it, the more it. you study Crowley and, and reading uh, Richard Kaczynski's uh, Perturabo and, and, and also uh, Martin Starr's um, The Unknown God, you get to see how badly Crowley treated his students and how 
how just a, a miserable person he could be. But then he writes this most sublime spiritual poetry and has these beautiful spiritual ideas. And it's like, there's, there's more to Thelema than the man Crowley. And that's what people who just have a passing interest in it don't understand. And unless you really get into the material, uh, it's, it's hard to, to understand the difference, you know, Crowley, the, the teacher Crowley, the, the, the prophet of the new aeon, uh, was a, was a totally different, uh, individual, so to speak, than, than, than Crowley, the guy who was stealing money from every order he was in and, you know, uh, abusing his students, uh, taking heroin for good medical reasons, but getting addicted from, you know, in the later parts of his life. So, you know, uh, I spend a lot of time with Thelema, but like Christianity there again, some, some Thelemites, I just don't have a lot of patience for some Thelemic organizations. I don't have a lot of patience for, but, uh, Crowley himself and, and the, the ecosystem that's grown up around Thelema in the last uh, 30 years. I mean, it's been, it's been huge. And it was a, it was a podcast that also got me interested too, is John Crow's um, uh, Thelema coast to coast and listening to him and key 418 argue about whether the caliphate OTO was legit or not, or how so, badly they were doing. It was a lot of that that really got me involved. It's like, here's people that are super passionate about this. And now this is yeah. even before I'm involved in Freemasonry, mind you. This is okay. So that's years. that's my that was my next question was um, now what year are we at now when you you're kind of now getting into the uh, thelemite stuff or the um, the OTO or any of those things and then at what point does that become Freemasonry? Well, in 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 the early part of the new millennium, I was in Seattle on holidays at an event totally unrelated to Thelema, and I'm at the edge of the circle bookstore, which if anybody is ever in Seattle, you have to go to Robert Anderson's bookstore and support it because it's one of these great occult esoteric bookstores that are dying, going away. He's still operating. I think he's still doing okay, but I'm in his bookstore at his old location in Capitol Hill. And I'm like, I hear there's a Gnostic mass today. I'd really like to go to a Gnostic mass today. And he's, he, he's like, well, you should go talk to that lady over there. There's a lady standing in the corner of the store. So I went over and introduced myself. I said, like, yeah, I've never been, you know, I know there's an organization back where I'm from, but I'm here today and I understand there's a mass today and it's public. The, the guys at home are a little more secretive. And she's like, yeah, just uh, go to Queen Anne Masonic Lodge. And, uh, you know, we were at the lodge and we do these events there. And the first time I ever saw a Gnostic mass um, it was just mind blowing. The, the priest was, um, was a, was a part-time musician and rock star. And so when he, when he did as part of the ritual, he vibrates these names, he calls out these, um, sort of Gnostic names and he just vibrated so beautifully in that Masonic space. And it was such a beautiful ritual and I never seen anything like it. And I was from that moment on, I've been hooked and you, you know what? I've seen other masses, but, and I've been at masses with hundreds of attendees and it's never been as good as that first one. Wow. And, and then we get back in the car and it's snowing and snowing in, in January in, or maybe December um, in Seattle. They don't salt the roads here. We get back, my wife and I get back in my uh, Honda Civic and drive home on regular tires. And it was just terrifying, but we had like a good long time to think about what we had just seen. And it was, it was pretty, um, pretty informative 
uh, pretty impactful, you know, and I've been dedicated to the great work ever since, ever since that, that one event was pivotal. And that was the first Masonic Lodge you ever went in? Yeah, the first, first time I was ever physically in a Masonic Hall, I think so. The first time I was ever aware that I was in a Masonic Hall. Yeah. And it wasn't for a Masonic event at all. But um, then, was that the thing that sort of sparked that leave a little seed that germinated in the back of your head? Or was there something after that? As a teenager, my one of my step parents had been a bit of a conspiracy theorist. So I remember reading Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And I remember going back oh, to it. Classic. Yeah. Right around 2006, 2007, I started making inquiries and uh, was denied my first uh, temple I applied to for various reasons. Uh, it's not important, but the guy, the guy who was assigned to sort of guide me into the, into the Freemasonry was really pissed. Uh, so he took me to another lodge and uh, a year later and, and I petitioned and I'm still a member today. Uh, a very active member of the Duke of Connaught Lodge. Actually, I'm, a, I'm the presiding master. Again, I was installed in the East uh, right before COVID. So January, 2020, I was installed in the East and then I was the master through all of COVID and we're reorganizing now as we're coming back. And you guys can understand we were locked down a little further than you in the States, right? right, right. Our Grand Lodge was not allowing us to meet until earlier this year. Like the, the, we had some meetings, November, December, 2021, but then we were all locked down again, I think until March or April. And then we were allowed to start meeting again. And I mean, Man. we came out of darkness. Uh, our lodge has a list of candidates. It's crazy how much interest there is in the craft right now. And and what drew me was um, the tradition and and the the very obvious fact that there's very strong esoteric current in in Freemasonry. Now it's not obvious to all members, but to those that are interested, there's a lot of excellent esotericism within within the craft, uh, and not just uh, not just Christian mysticism. There's lots of great new thought. There's hermetic philosophy. There's uh, traditional craft exposed in there. There's all sorts of uh, interesting stuff uh, for for an interested Mason to get their hands on. And and it's the the course in in making symbology that Freemasonry really shines through. And and the fact that the ritual is taken so seriously uh, that even in um, uh, certain uh, Wiccan pagan circles, you won't see a dedication to the to the ritual like you do in a Masonic lodge. Even though the ritual is totally different, and it's a totally different point, totally different material, but there's still that commonality of who's memorizing what, who's 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 doing, who's counting their circumambulations and paying attention. You know, who's who's keeping that antiquarian language in their ritual and pronouncing it correctly and still using it and knows what it means. Right. So I know we covered a lot of stuff there. I'm kind of all over. No, the that's, place. that's great. Um, Pat, you, you had something I can see. Yeah, it. Well, pr- prior to uh, us starting, we, we were chatting a little bit and you, you mentioned how, how, you know, there is esotericism and Freemasonry and, and that Absolutely. there are these kind of four different ways that you could kind of, pinpoint. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'm, I'm not the best one to know off the top of my head. I know Brother Jamie Paul Lamb wrote uh, an excellent essay that he presented at Esotericism and Freemasonry Conference 2021 and is in the new Archetypal Temple book where he talks about the four main and two uh, lesser uh, uh, 
traits of anything that would be considered academically esotericism. It's easy to find. You can look it up on Wikipedia. And I just don't know off the top of my head. It's, you know, secret knowledge, correspondences, these sorts of things. Um, But Freemasonry checks every box. So for, uh, for a Freemason, even somebody who is just not aware that this is something that's that's being discussed now in the past 30 years, academia sort of discovers a third way of knowledge in, in Western studies. And we've got theology on one hand and science on the other hand, uh, you know, the scientific method, and now there's esotericism. And the way I would define the difference is that with science, you could make a statement and back it up with evidence that other people can repeat. You know, it's a provable, provable facts. And theology is kind of at the other end of the scale. Sure, you might provide some proofs for your statement, but it's really, this is what my invisible friend says, and you better listen, is, is the, basically the, 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 the method behind theology. But there's a third way, a, a middle way, where the Gnostics would fit, and I mean small g, people that are interested in Gnosis. And how I would define Gnosis is, is you can, you could, you can experience it and know something to be true, but it's impossible to just impart that with words or with a, a provable methodology for somebody else to prove it to themselves. You can have suggestions about that methodology, and that's what these traditions that we all practice are for, is to sort of codify and give suggestions towards aspirants that are interested in repeating these experiments. But the, the, the capital T truth that's learned from these experiments uh, has to be learned through experience. And that trying to describe it actually lessens their value. And, and that's what's important to me is that, you know, guys want to talk about these things. And I think it's important for people to study the different underlying systems, whether it's Kabbalah or astrology or other types of symbological systems to express these types of ideas and thoughts. Uh, a lot of times the, the most profound ideas and thoughts have to be experienced uh, through ritual. And, you know, this is what's so uh, fascinating, I think, about um, uh, Brother Newman's ideas that he's putting forward in, in Angels in, in Vermilion, where he's suggesting that, you know, the, the alchemists and scientists of old, uh, their first goal was to go find some psychedelic drugs. Like that's the first thing they were looking for. Uh, let's go find uh, some hash and, you know, let's go, f- let's go find some fly agaric. Uh, let's go find these materials that, that are going to help us, you know, feel the mind of God or achieve the mind of God in the flesh. And and that's how the Royal Society was founded. It's pretty fascinating reading in any event. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they conceived of those drugs in a completely different manner in which, of course, we do now. You know? Well, they were they were I, scientists. And yeah, they they, yeah. they didn't have the the moral turpitude attached to it. You know, we've got a hundred years of moral conditioning that, right. that drugs are bad. Mm-hmm. You know, I said Crowley earlier was was addicted to heroin. He used heroin to treat his lung damage he had from being a mountaineer as a young man, and he couldn't breathe. And he took the heroin to to reduce his spasms. Well, that sure. was well, common use for heroin. That was what it was invented for. Sure, you know. And so people are like, well, he died a heroin addict. Well, yes. And he did experiment with drugs, a lot of drugs. Crowley was just um, 
absolutely voracious in his appetite for drugs and visionary experiences. And he will tell his students and anybody reading his writing, you know, this isn't for fun. This is for spiritual work only, but I'm certain he had a good time uh, doing it too. You know, pour pour out every ounce of his soul into the cup, but you know, he's still, he's still enjoying himself, you know? So I, I found the, um, I think it's Anton Favre's, his, uh, his, um, sort of uh, definition of, of esotericism. And I'm, I won't read the whole thing, but just quickly so the, the listener knows <clears throat> what it was that we were just talking about. Again, Anton Favre is who both Jamie and I, I believe um, there's even a portrait of Anton Favre in the book we just published um, for P.D. Newman. Um, yeah, the, the late Antoine Favre. I believe he, right. he's recently deceased. It, I think I think you're right, yeah. Um, so number one being correspondences, uh, as in the hermetic correspondences. As above, so below. Um, of course, yep. And then the living nature, as in the universe being alive, right? Uh, the okay. living nature of the the universe. The great uh, architect three, of the universe. Exactly. Uh, the house not made with hands, right? The universal yeah. temple. Yeah, the archetypal temple, um, yep. Then uh, number three being imagination and med- uh, mediation. So like active imagination or the direct, I would, I would kind of take that as like will work, right? The direction of the will. Or again, uh, archetypal temple building. Right. The, well, that's, that's the sort of crux of our ritual. Or Indeed. That's what we're doing is, is mm-hmm. active imagination. We're building. Yeah. Um, Number four, experience of transmutation. So that's a cool one. Um, the the think, rough to perfect think, Ashler. Right, exactly. Um, and number five, he lists a fifth, um, concordance of traditions. Oh, no, there's six here. So concordance yeah, of traditions. Yeah. Um, which, again, pretty obvious. Like we've just been doing this entire podcast, Golden Dawn or Rosicruz and this, this and that. It's, yeah, yeah. We can't have these conversations without talking about a concordance of traditions. And then six being transmission. So as in, you know. The ritual. The ritual transmission of the right. Mm-hmm. So that's Freemasonry, if you ask yeah. me. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> it's pretty spot on. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'll point people to. They're like, oh, there's no esotericism. Now, and we'll put this in the, the, we'll link the that, what I'm talking about, in the description of the podcast. It, it, people would argue, and I, I know you guys did an episode about the term occultism. And I, I right. like using the term occultist because it confronts all the right kind of people with, with all the right kind of things I would rather not discuss. If they're going to have a problem with that, then I don't, I don't want to talk to those people. Uh, now if they're brethren, that's different. So I, I, I will, I will calm my iconoclasm a little bit and, and in Masonic circles lean more into the term esoteric or esotericism. Uh, but for simple shock value, you cannot beat the term occultism or occultist. You just cannot, especially for people that just won't hear it. They're just, it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, you are, you are a representative of the opposer. You know, and that's, I'll see Jehovah's Witnesses on the street and they come to talk to me. I'm like, you don't want to talk to me. I'm the guy they warn you about that, that works for the other team. Yeah. And, and in reality, based on my spiritual belief and my spiritual tradition, that's actually not the case. 
um, uh, you know, um, the same spiritual force behind the world's great religions, uh, I believe guides my footsteps. I just don't want to be associated with those, with those established religions because of the, the craziness that's, uh, goes on in their name. Uh, and we're not going to talk about politics today, but you know, take, take a look around politically, uh, in your own home country and see the, see the wages of those sins, you know, at work. Yeah. Um, I've, I've found, I'd be interested to know how, how both of you feel, or I, I probably have a sense on how both of you feel, but just personally, I've felt sort of being always on, on a learning path, you know, I've never felt like I know this ever. I, I feel like, and, um, at a, at a point, um, I, I felt that there wasn't really an organization that could holistically sort of represent where I was feeling. It just never felt natural. And I never felt um, necessarily negatively towards any specific uh, religious organization, probably because I wasn't raised in one, right? So I, ha- I wasn't conditioned to, to sort of rebel in my late teens or anything. However, I just never affiliated, but the more I sort of dove into occultism uh, and began to learn about many religions and cultures um, because that's when all that learning happened. It wasn't in school ever. It was not until I became what I would consider to be an occultist that I learned of ancient culture and even modern culture to an extent and the varying sort of religions and and cultures that make up, say, the, the Western culture in general because uh, that's where I feel a little more proficient but anyways it was it just be- became harder and harder and harder for me the more I um, learned if you will to associate myself with a specific group now I've felt affinity for certain uh, religious groups as I've studied specific ones so like as I dove into orthodoxy, I went to an orthodox service several times and I got kind of into it and uh, I wanted to kind of feel it out uh, on its terms, you know, and I've done that several times, but again, never to the point where I called myself an orthodox Christian or anything like that. I don't, I don't know if the same is is true for either of you, but yeah, it'd be hard for me. The the further I go down my path, the, the, the less and less I like to just apply strict labels to anything. Cause I was, it's, you know, I, I wasn't a Christian until I was nine or 10 and then I converted to Christianity and then I wasn't the Thelemite until I was, you know, well into my twenties though with, with Thelema, you're often like, well, yeah, you, you, you read the ideas of Crowley's putting forward. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of this. Yes, yes, yes. And you're like, this is really how I've been living my life. Uh, and, and I don't think, uh, any, anybody putting them up as a spiritual authority, uh, telling you on completely subjective topics that your experience is less value than tradition. Uh, no, that's not the way it works with subjective topics on objective topics. Okay. You want to talk science, you want to talk rational proof here in the physical. That's one thing. But when it comes down to uh, the inner life, the spiritual pursuit the philosophical pursuit of every every man and woman 
it is totally up to them to be their own arbiter of what they'll accept and what they reject, what they what they take and, and what they apply to their own lives and what they set aside. And and ultimately it, it only affects them anyway in their own, you know, in their own personal practice. Well, hopefully. We hope affecting, right? yeah, affecting <laughs> others based on some subjective belief, like trying to enforce that on other people is just abhorrent to me. And that's there again, you, you, you see within craft Freemasonry, you see guys like, well, you know, I don't have time for this esotericism, so it shouldn't, or I don't want to know anything about it. So it shouldn't be involved. That's not my Freemasonry. It's like, well, that's just, you're totally missing the point of the craft to begin with. It's, it's about uh, a, a kind of a deistic freedom for individuals to approach the deity on their own terms. And if that deity is a higher aspect of themselves, so be it. If that deity is multiple deities, so be it, you know, and that as, as Freemasonry moves forward here, I'd like to think that most jurisdictions are embracing these wider uh, interpretations of what, of what the, the great architect could be. Mm. And because yeah. I believe in the spirit of the craft, that's what it should be doing. I, I understand there are still jurisdictions where you have to be a Christian or even a Trinitarian Christian to be a Freemason. And to me, that that's that that just doesn't strike me as very Freemasonic. But you know, who am I to say? Yeah, it does seem antithetical. Pat, what say you? Um, you know, that's that's one of the things I like about um, studying the occult is that you. You know, you're constantly on this journey, constantly learning new things and, and kind of how I relate to the divine and how I kind of see the world and, and my place in it is constantly evolving because of it. And, and, and I like that the people who I've met and I've surrounded myself on my journey have all been people who aren't telling me what the right thing is. It's an expectation that you're discovering what's right for you and you're you're on your own journey of self of self-discovery and it may be completely different and and it may be interesting it may be illuminating to each other but ultimately your journey is your journey and um there is no right journey um and, and ultimately that's all that matters right your, your knowledge of yourself is all that you ever really can have yeah and it's i really see it I mean, for me personally, it's all these different traditions is kind of like looking at a landscape from a mountain, right? And you see it, you take it in, you see that view, and then then you go and you climb this other mountain and you look at the same landscape. And it's like, ah, I see there's more valleys. I see there's this other side. I see that there's a tree line over here. And then you, then you go take the same view from another mountain and you're like, ah, there's a lake. I can now see, I, I can see a lake, you know? Um, and that's kind of how I see looking, you know, studying all these different tr traditions is uh, you're just kind of seeing more and more being revealed to you. Um, if, if, if I may use an example from my own work recently. So I've been reading this. I showed you guys this. I've been reading this angels in Vermilion by Peter. Yeah. Newton, okay. And I don't think I'm rending the veil here to suggest that his the central thesis of this book is that the alchemists and scientists of old that were interested in alchemy, the red stone, the red king, the lion, what they were talking about, what, what Brother Newman is suggesting here 
is that that was probably a psychedelic drug and maybe even a specific type of psychedelic drug derived from acacia bark. It, it's impossible to prove alchemists were notoriously secretive. Okay. I think his scholarship is good. He makes some leaps uh, as an experiential magician who has some sympathy with this book. I, I'm really not into entheogens myself, but he makes a really strong argument here. Now, do I want to go take ayahuasca and spend a few hours purging? It's like my least favorite thing in the world. But if there was somebody who could convince me to do it, it's the arguments in this book. Now, I'll back that up a second. Because 25 years ago, before I got involved in any of this, I would be the first person to tell you, no way because drugs are bad, right? Because I, I was conditioned, drugs drugs are bad. I, I grew up in a town that's famous for its marijuana. The conscientious objectors that moved to Powell River from the States to Lund to grow dope during the Vietnam War. That I mean, I was selling them rolls of plastic and poly pipe at the family business as a teenager. And they were paying with stacks of fives and tens that snaked to high heaven. You know what these guys are doing. And you know what? At that time, I was like, well, it's illegal. You probably shouldn't do it. But here we are now in 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 modern times in, in, in Vancouver, British Columbia, where marijuana is not only uh, decriminalized and legalized, it, it it's more popular than tobacco it, it maybe ever has been. And it, I mean, I, I've taken some small amount of edibles for sleep, but I just, I don't like myself when I'm high. I, 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 I don't know enough about myself when I'm high and I'm hard enough to take when I'm sober. But, but, but the, the difference now is that, that the choice brew of 32, 35 years ago, who was helping kids in his youth group identify satanic symbolism in rock music and, and, and occult and role-playing games. Cause that was my area of expertise was satanic symbolism. And I came by it, honestly, um, <laughs> that Troy would be like, never, no way. This is, that's where the seeds were planted. This guy just wants to get hot, <laughs> you know, but now the, the Troy that is me now. And as you get older, people tend to get, I think they they can get more open minded if they're not tuning into Fox News. In any case, uh, it, the Troy that exists before you now would be like if you are inclined to go drink bleach because you think that that's going to find you some enlightenment. Like, please don't do it where you're going to end up in the hospital. You know what I mean? But whatever you want to put in your body, if it's not going to kill you or cost our healthcare system, I am all for it. You know, if you're a if you're a rational human being and you could take rational steps to make sure you'll be safe, take whatever you want. Now, obviously there's limits to that freedom, but if, if there are people doing ayahuasca rituals that can guide you through it and you don't mind throwing up and experiencing these really strong visions and can take it seriously, I, I think people should be encouraged to, go, to do that kind of spiritual journeying. Uh, I, I don't think Dr. Timothy, Timothy Leary uh, was a was a bad guy, and his suggestion that adults could benefit from from psychedelic experience, it turns out, is probably the case. And and it took us as a society maybe fifty years to come around to to maybe these materials that we all banned and fought so hard to keep off the streets. Perhaps prohibition wasn't the best approach. Perhaps study and and, and advancing the knowledge of the species is the best approach, as it almost always turns out to be so sure and and maybe uh as <laughs> as as masonry does um uh, the 
there could be a greater than I feel like I'm dreaming here, but I I agree with what you said pretty much across the board there. And I, I wish, um, the last, in fact, the, the drug war was one of the, the first things as a kid who was raised relatively conservatively, uh, that I just didn't understand. Um, and never like bought onto. And it was funny cause I was pretty straight edge into my twenties. Yeah, me too. Full, me too. Fully straight edge. Still into now. My 20s. But still but at now. The same, yeah. But, but, but relatively, um, open-minded. Like I didn't mind being around it. In fact, I didn't mind like my best friends doing it. My question is, you know, we talk about temperance, obviously within the crafts, but a big topic. Um, how might that be? Uh, how might that conversation be had on a on a greater scale, on a cultural scale? Like, how do we sort of have? How do we practice the virtues in modernity? You know, like how does that right. play out in the cultural, uh, you know, um, landscape that exists today, where it seems like access and and um, you know, consumerism is just like rampant. And I think that applies to drugs as well. Like I think we're, um, I don't think any of, of legalization or decriminalization is a slippery slope as long as you're implementing like what you talked about, education and rehabilitation as like the two sort of leading or spearheading, um, practices but i think also also there's a cultural duty um and i don't know where that lands i don't know how that manifests i don't want to make make that claim but like how does the conversation of temperance uh play out how do we or is that just reserved for us (laughs) Are, are the the classic virtues just reserved for the guys who knock at the door of Freemasonry, you know, like I don't think temperance means abstinence, right? It no. just means n- not falling into excess. Right. And, and, and one can experiment with these materials. One could experiment with alcohol. One could mm-hmm. experiment with ceremonial magic. Um, one could experiment with their sexuality and still not be harming, you know, wider society, any other people, anything else around them, you know, and I think that's where you draw the line is, is there proof of harm, you know, with, with responsible usage, is there still proof of harm? Then maybe things could, should be kept safe uh, from the wider public. How do you keep kids safe? Well, you, you keep kids safe by educating them and making sure the adults aren't morons, you know, um, does that mean we could fully decriminalize in this society? I, I think the proof of what happened during prohibition in the twenties, thirties and forties in the United States is an exact example of what needs to happen with, with, with all, with all drugs that if you ban them, you just create an opportunity for there to be profit uh, by the, all the wrong sorts of people. Yeah. And, and where do, where do occultists and esotericists come down on this? Uh, We're interested in uh, the spiritual fallout of the proper application of small amounts of whatever. And that, I mean, I would expect, um, I'd have an ask brother Newman this, obviously I will be asking him if he's willing to go on the record, you know, have you, 
did you did you have you taken the ayahuasca? You know, do you do you know what this experience is like? It sounds pretty experiential to me when he's talking about it. And then when he makes the argument in this book, like he's giving all these example after example after example, and it's like it sounds to me like it always sounded to me like Ezekiel and Daniel were high in the Old Testament. For sure. Like they were ergot poisoning yeah. or they got a their hands on something that was really on delicious. fire speaking yes. to me. <laughs> right, right, right. And Moses. So were they, were they, were they like Chris Bennett says in 420, you know, were they on, were they on hash oil or what? I don't think it's important necessarily to know those historical things. What I think it's important to do is if you're interested in experiencing those things as a spiritual being, go forth and do that. You know, uh, uh, Crowley's own admonitions are, you know, as long as you're doing it for spiritual pursuit and not just for shits and giggles, then it should be okay. Now, will there be people who abuse it? Absolutely. Can, can you do something for them? Absolutely. So, you know, it, 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 I just think it's a good example of the type of freedom that can be applied in spiritual or subjective areas of, of belief or living. And, and I know that small L liberals um, have a, have a, you know, it's just a nasty thing to call somebody these days. I don't understand why, because Freemasonry seems to me like the ultimate establishment, small L liberal organization that is here fighting for the established rights of individuals to to basically, as long as they're not hurting other people, to practice as they see fit, to dress as they see fit, to behave as they see fit, work where they want, live where they want, these sorts of things. And, and uh, you know, that's the Freemasonry I joined, and I'm fighting to, to, to move forward. It, that's what's important to me. Now, to bring it all back to esotericism and Freemasonry conference, what, why is that important? Because there is a lot of resistance to Masons who want to not just practice these esoteric practices, but want to talk about it and discuss it amongst themselves in a Masonic context. And I think, I think that's a shame. I think it's a crying shame. And I think that if, if you are in Masonic leadership and you think there's something to be lost by brethren being encouraged to study themselves more closely with whatever system they want to apply, uh, I, I would question what you're doing in our gentle craft. Like, I really will. What What do you think you're accomplishing by holding back those free men and women who would do this work? And frankly, the the young the young the ones that are knocking at the door that's what they're interested in. It seems like you it. Know? Yeah. You know, Pat and I were literally just having this conversation last night about. Um, the liberal arts and sciences, mm. something, something we were, yeah, again, literally just talking about. And, um, I mean, th- there's an obviously conf- conflation now with, with a certain political lean when you say mm-hmm. that word, but yeah, that's, that was not necessarily the case. Uh, I don't know exactly, but I would guess, you know, for most of, of its history, you know, the, the word liberal meaning to, uh, freeing or liberating to liberate the liberal arts and sciences were meant to, to free you, to liberate you. Right. I mean, um, and masonry sort of centering its curriculum around those again, another argument, um, 
for free thought um, and utilizing classical, legitimate education, you know, uh, to free your mind in a way. And uh, I don't want I don't want any of what we said either to come off like like entheogens are the occult sciences, <laughs> you know, and that's what doing occult stuff is. Um, I don't know. You guys however, published a book that kind of argues that. <laughs> well, but, but certainly I, I an aspect. Saying. I get what you're I, saying. Yeah, maybe Newman would argue with me. Maybe He's we got to get on here and have a specific point with this book. Yeah, maybe Newman I mean, and I have broader, to have a have a fight. A no, I love, I love, <laughs> I love Petey Newman. Um. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. No, I, no, I, I think um, Freemasonry should remain. What's what I what what has been my experience is not any of that. Uh, neg- well. I've certainly experienced negativity in the craft, but in general, I've always found that even the the Grand Lodge, at least in my history, which is almost about uh, about a decade in Arizona Freemasonry, the the Grand Lodge has been supportive of new and interesting topics. You know, they've been quick to have Jamie lead a lead a talk here and there. They've been quick to ha- to you know lodges have flown Newman in. Newman's been to Arizona. I feel like. 10 times, you know, he's, um, been well received here, not certainly by everyone. And I've certainly sat, sat next to brothers at one of Newman's talks who <laughs> audibly yeah, scoffed it, it, halfway through his talk, but, and he's um, not bringing a, he's not bringing a block of hash and handing it around no, either. No, like, it, it's, w- it's, it would be cooler if he did. You're right. <laughs> But he didn't. So we'll talk to him about that. But generally, the craft has been supportive, at least in my experience, and hopefully in Pat's as well. You know, and that's it seems like that's the 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 lean that, that Freemasonry has had, I think, starting in the last couple decades. It feels like there's a bit of a, a renaissance and it's not not in regards to uh, numbers because it feels like we are right sizing. It feels like we're thinning out in the right way. Um and I wish we didn't, you know, judge our success so heavily on our numbers. You know, I think that's a bad uh, assessment or, of or our influence. Sure, um, we're probably better off uh, smaller um, and and more intimate. You know, that's and, that's and, and less noticeable. Right. Just leave we've us all, alone. Well, we've always been an easy target, mainly because we don't. Yes. Fight we back. don't talk. It's like you guys. We just throw our hands up. <laughs> What's funny is we talk. We talk about all the conspiracies in Lodge because they're fun for us to talk about, right? But it's like we'll never defend ourselves in public. We'll just. Well, right. Oh, but, did you hear this one? No, but you guys know that we had a conspiracy theorist attempt to burn buildings down in this jurisdiction. We lost two. But one building was completely consumed in, really? in, in less than a couple of hours. Really, and the second building he attacked was also almost completely lost. The frame of it is still there, but the wow. third building that, we, that he was coming out of when the off-duty police officer caught him and drew down on him, and only in Canada would somebody in the act of burning down a public building um, not be shot in the act. I mean, this guy was clearly mentally ill, but the the VPD guy let him get back in his van and drive off. They caught him not long after. <laughs> But I can only imagine wow. in, in, you know, in certain jurisdictions, in certain countries, um, you know, that takes a lot of discipline and it's not, I mean, the guy had it coming, but 
he was wow. not shot. The guy's going to get, hopefully get some help. But I mean, that's what, that's the wages of conspiracy theory. This guy who, and we're, we've been ordered not to talk about it. So I won't say any further than just this general comment that, that we were the victim of conspiracy theorists run amok, yeah. you know? And so uh, there not are those the first of us. time and it won't be the last. Yeah. Know, and there are those of us um, of the younger generation that, maybe ignoring it completely isn't the right approach. Maybe, maybe there are ways to discuss what's going on with that um, going forward that, hmm. that can be productive and not uh, just feed the fire, so to speak. I mean, it, you've got a general populace, like 98% of it just doesn't care that we exist. Only right. those of us who are members and those who are directly in opposition to us even existing for whatever reason, whether it's religious reasons or just they've just gone down the rabbit hole with QAnon or whatever, um, you know, it's it's it, the vast majority of people just don't even know we're there. And and yeah. maybe maybe just us lurking uh, in our own lodges and paying attention to our own knitting uh, is is what's needed in the long run. You know, um, I think there's a lot to be said for people, you know, to there's a quote Zig Ziglar says, and I, I can't remember what it's from, but he's always talking about it. It's, you know, if you want to make the world a better place, you should build a better you. And I think our Freemasonic lodges, these small groups of, of good men who have all been vetted or vouched um, talking about these types of materials or other edifying materials. I find education and lodge that isn't strictly esoteric or occultism I enjoy it also. We had a speaker uh, at the, our Duke of Connaught Lodge online that we were doing um, from Gander, Newfoundland. Now, during 9-11, this little town in Newfoundland, which used to be like a stopover for international flights, got something like 200 aircraft in the span of a few hours, right? <laughs> and these, these Newfoundlanders had to take care of all these strangers from all over the world who didn't, like they couldn't get to their luggage. They couldn't, they couldn't get anything. There wasn't food. There wasn't anything. And, and this, this guy came in and talked about how this small town of a few thousand people got together and took care of all these 9-11 refugees that were there for a week, you know, and, and this is the kind of stuff that that kind of educational performance or, or program was put together in a lodge. It could be done for any fraternal wow. organization. Yeah, I would have liked to. But it's the that. kind of stuff we, we also get into. And I also enjoy that talking about. Masonic procedural stuff, the, the, the delivery of ritual, or how to make sure your secretary's notes get handled, or how we archive things properly. Also interested in that. How we handle the business around our buildings. I'm particularly interested in that. Um, and, but that isn't, there's no esotericism or occultism involved in any of that. Uh, that is also still important. We still have business affairs that we need to take care of. Uh, I find that the, the founding history of the Freemasons rife with deists, lots of deistic beliefs. And, and when Robert Johnson in particular posts stuff from different Facebook deist, deist pages, he's always confronted by other Freemasons as, oh, this is all, this is, this can't be anything to do with Freemasons. Like, uh, I don't know if you look at the beliefs very closely of the people who founded these organizations. Uh, I mean, we're the last great deist organization left. We're the last big group of deists that, mm you know, could be summed up that the, the deity set, set the universe on an in-kind plane and best of luck to you guys. Now you're responsible for it. Don't go screw it up. 
uh, I think there's lots of people who don't like to think about it in those terms because then they're personally responsible for what goes on in their lives. Uh, lots of people just want to blame somebody else. You know, Freemasons are an easy target. God's an easy target or the devil is also an easy target. It's lots of easy targets. Occultists like me tie me to a stake and set me on fire. Low hanging fruit. Mm. But these and, conspiracy theorists got to do better. And what, one of the reasons the low hanging so, fruit. One of the reasons I'm so public about my interest and my belief, and I use my real name, and you could find me pretty easily. I, I host my podcast as Troy the Devil Man, as an homage to the guys who gave me the epithet. But there again, it confronts the right kind. The, it confronts all the kind of people I don't want involved. You know, if you have a problem with me calling myself Troy the Devil Man, I don't believe in the devil. Yet I call myself the Devil Man. And I'll go to another podcast and summon demons out of the, the lesser key of Solomon, out of the Goetia, you know, live in front of an audience. Because to me, that's interesting. It's an interesting experiment. But some people in the audience that night were religious practitioners, found it very transgressive and very freeing in the end. They communicate to me. But it's just like, you know, you, uh, you, you have to be able to, to, to open up a little and, and be able to hear what other people have to say, you know, perhaps you're the, the fact that you're so certain, like I am that I'm so certain, perhaps the reason you're so certain is you're just trying to comfort yourself and perhaps, you know, chaos reigns supreme and nobody's really in charge and the world's just a sphere on an inclined plane. And the, the deity is, is off playing golf or something. Or, or we are in charge. Yes. Everything so, is true. <laughs> Everything is permissible. Um, you know, I, I started Scholomance Project, it, it, and it started about the same time you guys started, almost within months of you guys putting out an episode. I put out an episode, and it's it's um, you know I want to have interviews with people that have other ideas that should be put out there that aren't uh, any in any way uh, uh, restricting that are about opening people's minds to talk about this stuff, to, to keep people thinking about, you know, these beliefs that I hold, perhaps I could soften up a little bit and, and, and you, myself as, as person number one. And you've talked to a bunch of, a, a good variety of people so far. What, what is, what have been the big, um, big lesson you've kind of learned from having spoken to people from these different, uh, um, traditions. Well, it's funny you ask that because I think I've talked about 65 or 75, maybe 80% of the time we've been on tonight. You know what I've learned? You know what I've learned, Pat and Jake? I've learned that I should shut up and listen more. That's <laughs> Oh, sweet irony. <clears throat> well, no, that's, that's, we, we had you on ours. So I, and I have to say, you are a terrific storyteller. Well, thank absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I love. I loved learning, hearing the. Quite uh, a bit. Yeah, the great thing about meeting new people is you could use old material over again. Oh. <laughs> Damn, I got to do more of that. You're right. <laughs> My friends that tune into this, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, they're all rolling their eyes. That that'll one be the, again. That'll be the twelfth uh, yeah. time this week. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. No, we or they call it. me. They're like, you know, that detail you keep throwing into that's not the right detail. This is the right detail. I yeah. was there. <laughs> well, it's been about an hour, so I think I think it's it's about time to to wrap up. Um, 
Troy, we've really enjoyed having you. And uh, you know, please, please, if you're if you're interested in uh, going to esoteric esotericism and Freemasonry conference, uh, the links will be in uh, in the show notes. Um, it's super easy. Esotericmasonry.com. Esotericmasonry.com. Uh, and and then and then the, the podcast. Your podcast. Sholomance.ca. Now the podcast is a little harder to find. Is uh, as the my my podcasting heroes at the Gary and Dino show remind me. They're like, "Why did you name it something that can't be pronounced or spelled?" <laughs> it's like a test. It's like it's like the Scholomance itself. It, it it you have to. It's almost like a quest to find it. <laughs> to put a little <laughs> effort into it. it. It's an Eastern when can we European expect, myth. Um, a new episode. Uh, I just uh, thank you for asking. Uh, Jake, um, because I don't think I've promoted it enough, but you guys have let me go on and on. So I'm just, I just feel <laughs> so lovely in your, I'm basking in your glorious presence right now. Um, cause you called me a great storyteller and I'm, I don't know if I'll ever recover. You know, um, what? I'll inflate the, ego. maybe I'll need a brace to hold my head up. <laughs> I just, I just edited last night. So when, when, when is it Daniel PD Newman? Is that what he likes to be called? Cause he doesn't like to be called PD clearly. You know, I Danny, I call him I, I call him Danny I call him Newman I don't know Mr. I don't know how about how about when he's Mr. Not Newman here I don't know him I don't know him as well as I'm letting on how about I just say Mr. Newman when Mr. Newman yeah. couldn't make it last night my he probably hates that we're in this you know we're in this dude that's my dad <laughs> uh, we were in the studio editing down a couple of episodes and I've I've been really good over the past like six or seven years of keeping my hands on anything that was recorded. And so now I'm digging through these archives and finding this delicious stuff that does need judicious editing because I do shoot my mouth off and say things that aren't true. Uh, so I have to edit things out when I say stupid things. Uh, I'll let other people, guests on the show, stay stupid things, and I won't call them out on it. But my own stuff that I'm stupid, I edit it like crazy. Yeah, so we, leave all our stupid, editing, we leave all our stupid editing. stuff right in. <laughs> we leave it all out there, baby. So, uh, yeah, Clay and I were in the studio and we edited down an episode I recorded recently with most worshipful brother, Philip Durrell, who was the, the, the grand master of this jurisdiction when I was in the East with my lodge for the first time. And, uh, brother Durrell and I have spent a lot of time in lodge together. We've been through a lot of interesting experiences together and those stories will come forth over time, but he and I recorded about 120 minutes and I edited down a 45 minutes release to the public and then a uh, part two of about 40 minutes more of interest to Freemasons. Uh, that's all going to be released sometime in the next week or two. The part, the part twos for the Patreons only. Uh, but then I got him to read one of his papers on tolerance and forbearance. Uh, because as much as I, I, I preach it, you know, this liberal tolerance, this forbearance, which I think is more important than tolerance. It's not just putting up with other people. It's truly trying to understand and meet them halfway. Um, he, he read his paper and, and part of this project will be to have uh, luminaries of all stripes come on and read their own material for posterity's sake. I'm going to be targeting the older guys because I want to get their voice on the record, re reading their own material uh, in a way that could be accessible going forward, you know, in the spirit of LibriVox and other uh, public access. So none of that stuff that I record uh, like that will ever be behind a paywall. 
just just the the stuff that's after the teasing part of the first part of the interview goes behind the paywall so that I get people to pay because it's expensive to do this. So we'll support yeah, Tro- that- Troy. Go to his yes. Patreon right now. Do it the, right now. To, it said you asked Jake one more. The other thing that I'll be to release at the end of July is a recording I did with uh, a, a guest I had on Professor Harbinger who's like a, a, a bit of a chaos magician and just somebody who's never practiced with the group, only practiced on his own, has his own symbol set, his own tarot deck and his own everything. Uh, he interviewed me like five years ago for a project he never got off the ground. And so he found that like two and a half hour interview from five years ago. If you could interv- interview yourself from five years ago, think how silly you'd sound. Anyway, yeah, I took that and chopped it up into into a couple of slices and I'm going to release half of it publicly and the other half behind the paywall. So uh, that's coming up before the end of July. And I've got so much, there's just so much stuff that I've got kind of loafing around here that I, that I come up with um, and put episodes together with. And in the meantime, I've got feelers out to two or three dozen uh, people uh, from hardcore cultism, OTO, uh, Golden Dawn, uh, traditional craft, different publishers, people who've published stuff, people who don't have anything to sell, but good talk well about their tradition. I've got all of that stuff I want to get to. And that's, you know, interviewing these people and asking them provocative questions, just letting them talk is really important. That And, and what, what really triggered me to do it, you know, one of my occultist friends in Seattle, who he and I have been attending the esoteric book conference for years together before it, it kind of changed into something else. Um, he said, you know, there needs to be a platform with, for people who talk well, but don't have anything to say. And so or, sorry, <laughs> don't have anything to say, don't have anything to sell. That was the key is to maybe you could edit that out there, Pat. <laughs> we don't, we don't do that. Say or sell. <laughs> people, people who have something to say, but nothing to sell. That's, yeah. that's some of what I want to feature. So, Anyway, it, it was a pleasure talking to you guys, and I appreciate the feedback. And, and thanks for swelling my head so bad. Uh, my wife won't let me back in the house tonight. No, we, we, appreciate, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, yeah, it's been great. And hopefully we can do this again. No, Absolutely. thank you for letting me come on and, and promote my stuff. And I will definitely have you guys on. Um, maybe the, maybe, uh, the two of you without Jamie might, might be, might be fun to talk about. Maybe we could do a talk. Here's an idea. You guys could do a talk of what it's like to be friends with somebody like Jamie Paul Lamb. What yeah, it's let's like just, to sit in the studio and listen to his story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's just talk about Jamie for a couple hours. Oh, that would be I love that. One hour of delicious. one hour of only smack talk and then another hour of sort of like indifferent conversation like no you you build a shit sandwich just talk shit and then all the great things we love about him and then shit some more at the end yeah and there the opposite way and that will sort of allude to how how well we are friends with him (laughs) and and whether or not he sticks around on the podcast i guess too (laughs) after that (laughs) anyway well i if you ever need a, a, a third party or a second party or you ever need it, you'd ever want to attend a party, invite me along. I'm happy to party. Well, appreciate it, Troy. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be, uh, be, be watching uh, Esotericism and Freemasonry Conference and kind of see how that goes. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, thank you, guys.